I'd wake up and there'd be somebody at the breakfast table and I was like, hey, how's it going? He's like, hey, I, I met your dad last night. I was like, oh, where'd you meet him? Grand Central at the train station? Yeah, you said I could stay here for a while. I cannot remember a time for more than six months where they hadn't opened up their house to someone who needed a little break. And uh, it had a, had a profound impact on the way I see the world today. Welcome to The Road to Why by the Northern Trust Institute, a show where business owners and entrepreneurs discuss their life's work and explore the intersection of business, family, wealth, and legacy. I'm your host, Eric Chapea, Director of Business Services at Northern Trust. All right, it's officially the fall, which means, of course, football, hockey, and basketball seasons are kicking off. So I thought it would be fitting that my guest today is Scott O'Neill, one of the most well-respected executives in the professional sports industry. As CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, Scott oversaw the company's portfolio, which included the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. Scott also served as president of Madison Square Garden and was alternate governor for the NBA and NHL for over a decade. Last year, Scott made a significant career change, moving to London to become the CEO of Merlin Entertainments, the world's second largest visitor attraction operator, overseeing attractions such as Madame Tussauds, the London Eye, and Legoland. In today's episode, Scott discusses the importance of being a good leader and shares some of the principles he lives by both at home and at the office. Scott is one of five highly accomplished siblings, and not the only C-suite executive among them. So to begin our conversation, I asked Scott to describe his upbringing and some of the early influences on his life. I had as good of upbringing as anybody could ever imagine. Not that to say it was perfect, it was far from that. But I was surrounded by people who, who loved me and supported me and, and were my best teammates and biggest cheerleaders and, and also truth-sayers and truth-seers. And I felt like there was a lesson around every corner. I was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, and then moved to uh, beautiful Akron, Ohio. And then uh, to top off with the trifecta, I ended up um, spending most of my time in Newburgh, New York. And so three relatively depressed towns. Um, I was one of five. Um, I'm 53 years old. I have a brother who's 54, one who's 52, a brother who's 50, and my sister is 48. So we were essentially, we all grew up together. Um, all our friends intermingled and in, in, um, interchanged between us all. My folks were very industrious. Uh, they worked really hard. Uh, my mom was a, a daycare teacher. And uh, my dad started as a dean of students of Mount St. Mary College in Newburgh, and then quickly um, kind of uh, sprung off on his own to start a company. We didn't have much growing up. I was a food stamp baby, and then uh, with so many kids so quickly, and uh, my dad starting his business, there wasn't a lot. Um, but what, what you know when you don't have a lot is you typically are around a lot of people that have even less. And so there was never any, any talk of what we didn't have. And, um, you know, I mean, there were four of us and with two bunk beds in a room that was probably eight by eight in our house. And for us, it was like a playland. So we went from not a lot of means to my, my parents at least in our little town, making it, if you will. So we went from struggle to country club. 
Um, you know, we moved into a bigger house. We had a tennis court and a pool and joined a country club. And uh, we, we, we always had, had a little edge to us and kept that edge. Both my folks are PhDs. My mom got her PhD later on in life when she was 65. And they were both in the leadership training development business. And I, I feel like that, you know, growing up, it was a, a bit of a laboratory. And my parents had very different philosophies than I think the typical helicopter parents that you see today. We grew up understanding what consequences were. If we made a mistake or we're making bad choices, the conversations would oftentimes be at a family meeting, which we had at our dinner time. And, and it was really interesting. We, we never, you know, they never, I don't, can't remember my parents looking at my grades, but the ex expectation was more on the process than the actual results. Are you prepared? Do you study? My parents never said, do you have a test tomorrow? Did you finish your homework? I never heard those words. And yet all but one of us went on to graduate degrees, which is kind of interesting, you know, and the one who didn't is, is, uh, is more of the creative, you know, he's just a wonderful, brilliant creative. I feel like I've been given every advantage possibly in life. Can you imagine waking up every day and being told you're loved? I love you. My dad was, you know, uh, Irish dad, Scottish Irish dad and Italian mom. So there's a lot of emotion in the house all the time from me included. And it didn't matter what happened. Um, and I was the most difficult kid by far. And I had a lot of energy and didn't know how to use it. Didn't know how to express myself. I was throwing tantrums till I was 17 years old, believe it or not. Uh, broke more than a few doors and made way too many mistakes. And yet I caused the least amount of problems of all my siblings outside the house. I was told I was loved. And, and if I made a mistake or did something dumb or reacting to behavior, my father would say things like, just remember, it's what you choose, it's the choices you make. It's the ceiling you put on yourself because you can do anything you choose. I remember being a young kid, it was fifth grade or something. My mom telling me I should be an astronaut because that was the thing at the time. But it, it, was a, it was a wonderful house full of love. As we grew up, our house became the center. So on weekends, you know, there'd be a dozen kids sleeping over our house. I also grew up in a house where um, even if I remember like the earliest days, like the earliest I can remember, my folks had, would take somebody in and we didn't have a lot, but the way they showed what I'd say is like, you know, Christian love or, or like the ultimate service. You know, I, I'd wake up and there'd be somebody at the breakfast table and I was like, hey, how's it going? He's like, hey, I, I met your dad last night. I was like, oh, where'd you meet him? Grand Central at the train station? Yeah, you said I could stay here for a while. I cannot remember a time for more than six months where they wouldn't hadn't opened up their house to someone who needed a little break. And uh, it had a, had a profound impact on the way I see the world today and try to do my little small part in life to make the world a little bit better. And I think about that a lot, having three daughters of my own, 23, 19, and 16, and removing my 16 year old halfway across the world, as she said, and, and, and also ruining her life at the same time and moving her to London. And you just think about like what's finite is time. And so just make sure that I, I have so many precious memories and moments from, from growing up. And I, I'm just trying to cherish all those I have with my children now. Well, I want to return to your upbringing and how you've influenced the upbringing of your children and your own family. But before we do that, I'd love to fast forward a bit. You've had an incredible career, but maybe if we could go to 2017, I believe, you join Harris Blitzer, sports and entertainment, CEO. At the time, the business, I believe, manages the 76ers, Philly 76ers, professional basketball team. That's pretty much it. The 76ers aren't doing so well in the league. During your tenure, 
Harris Blitzer becomes a multi-billion dollar live sports and entertainment group. You've got real estate holdings, multiple professional sports teams, esports, venture capital fund, innovation lab, marketing company. We could spend like three podcasts going through that trajectory, but maybe if we tease out two themes here, one this idea of culture. So the 76ers have been named one of the top 50 cultures by Entrepreneur Magazine. You've been named one of the most innovative executives in sports. So when you think about that journey at Harris Blitzer, what can you give us in terms of insights around culture and innovation when you were there? I have just an overwhelming sense of gratitude more than anything else from my experience there. Eight years is a it's a wonderful and, a, and such a like a big part of my children's lives and how they grew up in and around people that I love, like, and respect. In terms of innovation and growth, boy, first you have to have, uh, you know, had two managing partners, Josh Harris and David Blitzer, and then also Michael Rubin was on the board and, you know, Roger Krause and Mark Leader. I mean, these are, these are Adam Aaron, who's the CEO of AMC. And I mean, it was like powerhouse group several billionaires, very strong personalities, and all wonderful human beings who believed in hiring great talent and empowering them to do their jobs. And what, what a great platform to walk into it. You know, you have one of the iconic franchises in the history of sports. And so you have a great board, you have a great platform. And I, I remember like it was yesterday, one of my, one of my first board meetings, you know, we had a chance to, to take down some, some debt and hand out some money and I remember the board meeting like it was yesterday. And, and I remember Mark Leader, who's one of the founders of Sun Capital with uh, Roger Krause down in Florida. And he, he looks around, he's like, does anybody here need the money? You know, and they're all shaking their heads. No, no, no. They're like, well, can you find a better use for it? I was like, bingo, you know? And so that was the start. And at that point we took off like a rocket ship. Cause all, all I kept thinking about was if you assemble the best talent in the world and create a culture where people can be challenged, be stretched, feel empowered, and understand their role and, and how to be a star in that role, then really fun, special things are going to happen. And as a, as a CEO, when you're reading about things happening, you know the organization is cooking, meaning like it's not you. I mean, at that point, you've set it in motion, you've set the strategy, you've helped build the, you know, the expectations of who we are, you've set the mission, you've helped drive the values, you're trying to reinforce all that, you're trying to unlock resources and block and tackle for some and push others and hug others. But at the end of the day, it's like, as these organizations scale as CEOs, you know, you, you need to understand your role, you know, and, and make sure that, that the, the talent that you bring in has that opportunity to thrive. That's what happened there. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to it's feel like I, I work amongst a constellation of stars throughout my entire career. And, and some of that as a leader, you, you're trying to coach them because they're oftentimes young, you know, young stars need a little coaching and direction and, and oftentimes some feedback and then some love and nurturing in terms of understanding what they want to do and where, what they want to accomplish and how you can help them fulfill their dreams. And then set really clear expectations about, but in the here and now, here's what I need for you to get done and do at a world-class level. And, and it's, that's, as a leader, there's nothing uh, more special and more rewarding to seeing incredible people fulfill, fulfill their dreams. Yeah, that's, a, that's fantastic. And by the way, I probably should have mentioned the 76ers. I think they ended up winning the Atlantic Division. So it was a success story all around. 
it was coined by the by a player named Tony Roten. Trust the process, prop the process. And um, we we went from the worst team in the league for like over a three year period. We lost more games than any team in NBA history to a team that finished first overall in the, in the East, won the Atlantic, and a bounce away, a bounce away here or there from uh, sizing one of these up for a, for a different kind of ring. So, but it was a wonderful journey. And, you know, you have players like Joel Embiid and, and Ben Simmons, and it was fun. Jimmy Butler and TJ McConnell, all these like iconic players that will go down in the history of this, this league. It was fun. And then we bought the Devils uh, in the Prudential Center, which, which, um, and, and turned that franchise around. You see what they're doing now. They're, uh, I guess, the second favorite team to, to win the Stanley Cup this year in the NHL. So, you know, you have two like, tremendous turnaround stories and and the folks that made it happen have, have just done an incredible incredible job so i i'm rooting for for josh harris and david blitzer and, and their their group and rooting for the executives that are there and the players and coaches and gms and all the people who nobody ever talks about like you know the the ticket sales people and the trainers and the, the brand people and the people who put the show on like the game entertainment all those folks that work so hard i just i love to see them find success on and off the court nice and, and stage Basketball has not only played an important role in Scott's career, Scott also used to coach his daughter's basketball team. On the subject of family, I asked Scott the question that many of our clients face. How do he and his wife, Lisa, cultivate values that are important to them in their three daughters while giving their daughters enough space to chart their own path in life? Well, it's certainly a journey. Anyone who's raised children, um, in particular teenagers, in particular teenage girls, knows that there's no easy road or no easy path. And and um, and what happens on on television and movies isn't quite the way it happens behind closed doors at home. And I and I say that with love and, and a twinkle in my eye. I just I feel overly blessed to have three daughters that I know. I know their friends. I'm invested in their life, their lives, and they're invested in mine. I feel like as they've gotten older, you know, my my role of, of of parent has become a coach, you know, where I provide a little feedback and let them make their own decisions and choices, much like my folks did with me. But I, I will tell you that my children, you know, they've seen it all. My, my older one in particular, I and mean, we went through a, a tough financial time or two, but now we, you know, we're kind of over that financial hump and it's different. Um, I will tell you that my, my daughters, they know how to serve. My oldest one, Alexa, she has worked in a a refugee camp for orphans in um, in Africa. She's worked in a Syrian refugee camp in uh, in Athens. My middle daughter, we built a school in Mozambique. She's now serving a mission for our church, and she's in serving for eighteen months. And my my youngest, much the same, is following in the footsteps. So um, so she served and built a school in uh, North Carolina as a fourteen year old. And next year she will be going off to somewhere. We haven't decided yet. And I think that's part of it. It's like, how do you get perspective when you're going to Hawaii? How do you see the world when you can just click on Amazon and get whatever you want and order it? But the expectation is, is that, that you go and make the world better. That, that's something that we've held on to pretty closely and the girls have embraced, which has been wonderful. And then the second thing is, I think there are different ways you can learn things like when you can like navigate that, that confidence meets humility balance. And something about confidence is accomplishment, you know? And so I, I do want my girls to accomplish. I also want them to fail. 
So all the girls play sports. Uh, none of them had a choice. I coached them all in basketball from the time Alexa, my oldest, was five years old up until I kind of dropped them off in high school and wish them well. And did get to coach my middle daughter her senior year. I, I was between uh, opportunities and we ended up winning a state championship. My, my first and only year of coaching high school basketball, which was really fun. To be able to coach your daughter is so cool. But having this chance with these ladies is what brings me the most joy. Uh, my oldest daughter, Alexa, she just got a job at the NBA, the National Basketball Association. So in the family business, if you will. This is a kid who uh, he's walking to the, she's walking to the door right now and smiling. Do you want to say hello? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Hi. How's it going? Uh, this is the podcast. Get off. Welcome to our podcast. So, so she's, uh, you know, but this is a kid whose school didn't come naturally to her, you know? And so to see her work her, her tail off in college to figure out how to learn and how to get grades and how to, you know, she had three internships. And I gotta tell you, like, you know, that's what it takes, you know? And so I'm not interested in like helping my kid get into a school. It's, it's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in them landing where they should land. And these kids have had every advantage they could ever have. They've gone to the best schools. They don't walk out of school with a nickel of debt, but I, I do want them to feel it a little bit. And the internships, I, no shame. I help, I, I make a call and help them get an internship. As far as jobs, not so much, you know? Um, and so, so in terms of, of grounding, I think that's a place where I, I, I'm comfortable. Like I think our, our girls have their feet firmly planted on the ground. I think they're confident young women. They've had their own failures in, in different ways and they've learned about resilience. They've learned about toughness and they've learned about what it takes. And, and sports is a great teacher. And, and my girls are not gifted athletes. They're competent athletes, but they're not gifted. And even that, like, so a couple of my girls had to sit for a year or so, like sit on the bench and watch. And I used to say like, that's the test. Not when you're to start. The test is when you're watching, like, what do you look like? What do you sound like? How hard do you practice? How much do you get off your seat and cheer, cheer the girls on that are playing? That's the test. How do you lead by not being the best player? That, that's, I love those lessons. I read your book, Be Where Your Feet Are. I love it. And there's a lot of great lessons for life and business in there. One that resonated with me personally was this is idea of API, assume positive intent. And on the subject of business and also raising a family, what does that mean to you? And how do you incorporate that into your life? My best friend had died of suicide. And I went into a, a dark, deep place that I couldn't quite get out of. And, and I began to write to escape. And, um, and my wife, Lisa, she had called her friend and had written uh, several books. And, and he came to see me. His name was Randall Wright. Wonderful, wonderful man. And was just kind of lecturing me nicely. And so his, his plea to me was, you know, you, you spent your whole life trying to help people. What if what you're writing could help somebody? And I was like, nah, it's like my personal journal. I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing it. And he said, but if you could help one person, would you do it? Which is a really interesting way to think about life. And so, and that's why that turned into this book, Be Where Your Feet Are. It's amazing. And with a lot of help from an amazing writer, um, Michelle Bender, who helped turn my gibberish into a real book. And, and I'm Jan Miller, who's probably the best agent in the world. But so I had like people helping me when I needed help the most. And then you have this chance, you have this platform, just like you have in life or just like you have as a dad or a mom. And so I, I began to, to think about like the impact that we might be able to have on, on people. And this came right out during COVID. So like we were having a mental health crisis. I think we still are in this country, in the US, maybe the world. So assume positive intent to answer your question directly. 
It's a wonderful tool, and I and I I, I don't hit that curve. I, I aspire to hit the curve, and I've gotten a lot better over time about walking into a room and assuming positive intent. But you know, you walk into a room or a house of teenage girls, and and there's some friction with the mom, and you're trying to assume positive intent. Your general counsel decides that she doesn't want to work here anymore, and and you've got to still work through that for six months in the middle of a hard time. You know, you need to assume positive intent. And it shows up all in all facets of life. If, if you literally just assume that the person is wants to do the right thing, wants to say the right thing, um, and, and you, don't, um, you don't expect perfection from anybody, life gets better. Their behavior doesn't change, but yours does. Their attitude doesn't change, but yours does. It's like, think about your, 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 your children and how they interact with each other. Can you imagine if they assume positive intent all the time, how different the atmosphere in your house might be? So for me, is is the the concept? It's actually etched all over our house, and it's you know when you leave our house, it's the, it's the last thing you see before you leave our house. If you go into our girls' rooms, and my in our room, it's like it's somewhere. It's etched into stone, literally, in our rooms, so that we have a reminder that it's it's kind of on us, you know. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful concept. And the the more you embrace it, and the more you challenge yourself and those around you to live with that API philosophy, the stronger your relationships get. The more effective leader you get, the more effective your parenting can be. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful tool. In addition to API, one of the other principles that Scott lives by is WMI, what's most important, which just so happens to be the theme of our podcast. So I asked Scott, what's most important in his own life that, in his words, keeps him running to work and running home? I found the older I get, the less judgmental I get. You know, I, I feel like if money motivates you, that's okay. But then you should put yourself in a position where you can optimize for whatever that is, right? For me, it, it always revolves around my work has been my hobby, you know? So, and what you learn about WMI is, is that the reason you identify what's most important is because life's about trade-offs. And I'd love to say you can, you can have everything and do everything. I'm sure there's some people that are. I just haven't figured it out. There are X amount of hours, and I know I have to spend time on what's most important for me. My family's most important. My work's most important. My face's most important. So, and if you don't fall into one of those three categories, you're going to get less and less of my attention. And so that means that I'm probably not the best friend in the world. It doesn't mean that I don't love my friends. It just means that they come at a different priority than the rest of the things that are, that are most important. And then how you prioritize those, like, can you ruthlessly prioritize? And I, I would say that, that my prioritization goes up and down. And so when I'm my most best effective self, I am ruthlessly prioritizing. And when I'm least, I'm just letting the, the floodgates are open and whoever screams loudest or last gets a seat at the table. And when you're focused, well, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm at Merlin Entertainments now and, and we're going through a, a bit of an incredible kind of reset a strategy, retool the management team, upscale across, you know, and we're building something really special. Like you have to make sure that every moment is spent in the right way. And coming off 18 months on the beach where I just, you know, I told you I coached my daughter, I wrote a book, I went out speaking, I joined some boards. And you move from that to where every minute is scheduled. 
when I'm at my best, I'm actually, I understand what those, what the three things that are most important. And I have three things under each of those that are most important. And I try to spend the majority of my time on them. I actually love that idea of ruthlessly prioritizing, particularly in this day and age where I think with our phones and social media and everything else, there's so many distractions that can pull us away from what's important. You mentioned the importance of talent and cultivating people. And I think related to that is the importance of mentors. I would love if you could spend maybe a minute in our last few minutes together talking about what it was like working for the late NBA commissioner, David Stern. I think he was, if I understand, a tough guy to work for, but an incredibly important mentor in your own life. I think about him quite a bit. So he, he passed away a few years ago. Um, it was my dad's age. And I, I remember being in meetings with him. He was a tyrant, you know, and, and believed in his heart of hearts that the best way to get the most out of his team was through fear and intimidation. I was like at a really fun time in my career. I was, you know, in my early 30s and, and he was at the tail end of his career. And we would get on a plane with him and people would scatter to the back because he was a bit aggressive in those calls. And I would just sit right across from him and I would ask him a hundred questions. And, and he loved to talk business and I loved to learn and listen from who I think is the greatest of all time. And I would press him on it. I was like, but that's not how you get the most out of me though. But he believed that episodic micromanagement was the best way to run a company. And it was all stuff that was so fascinating to me, how someone you know as successful as he is, was, and all he accomplished, you know, had this philosophy that, that felt very different from the way that I see the world. And, and I can tell you, like, look, you, you can't argue with his success. You also can't argue with how much he loved and took care of his people. Like, as tough as he was, um, I had some things not go very well for me personally during my tenure at the NBA. First call every time was from him, every single time. There was nobody that you could count on more than him to help when you needed him most. And he was a, a mentor and teacher and guide of mine until the day he died. And I, I think about him a lot. Um, I also think about how, how I can take the lessons I learned and, and, and share them forward. I think the world's changed. I think what this rising generation yearns for is, is transparency. They're very values driven, right? So this is a group that looks at you as the CEO and says like, what do you stand for, buddy? Because if you don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote with my feet. I'm just going just gonna to leave. So it's a, it's, I think it's a really challenging time to be CEO, but how empowering to be with such a smart group that understand their brands and your brand, that they're pushing us, kind of that, this older generation, to do better. We have 50 aquariums at Merlin. It's like, how are you treating the sea creatures? What, what, how are you treating the animals? I want to know what you're doing. We have a whale sanctuary. Like, um, we have a seal sanctuary. We have a dolphin sanctuary. We're like restoring coral. We're doing, and it's not, you know, because we're forced to. It's because it's in our DNA. But because of that, we attract better talent and they stay. And without it, they would walk away and never tell you. And so there's so many things. It's like, it's different and wonderful. And so I always think about like what, you know, I ask myself, what, what, how would David handle the situation? I think the style, like the yelling and screaming and bullying, you, you just can't work today. You know, it's just like, it doesn't exist in the marketplace and it shouldn't. And it did back then, it was okay. And I think about like how he could have used his gifts today and how wonderful he would have been because it, he had the heart and soul of a lion. I mean, he was just wonderful. And he understood purpose and he understood how you, you leverage basketball to, to change the world. And he understood the global nature of the game before anybody. 
and he was a lifelong learner. And I would have loved to have seen David Stern today as a remade executive in today's world, talking to today's kids, because I think he would have been a, just a magnificent leader as he was back then. The principles that Scott lives by can be helpful to each of us, both in our personal lives and in our careers. Assume positive intent when dealing with others, commit to what's most important in your life, and ruthlessly prioritize accordingly. A huge thanks to Scott for sharing his story with us today. If you enjoyed our conversation, please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.